What's going on, everybody, and welcome into this edition of Be Shafe Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you in the evening hours of Thursday, July 6, 2023, with plenty to talk about tonight when it comes to the St. Louis Cardinals as they wrapped up their series in Miami against the Marlins with a 3-0 victory on Thursday. Oh, and thank goodness for that. The Cardinals avoid the dreaded four-game sweep. I was able to send out a variation of the, the famous sweeps-related tweet. I say a variation because typically I'm saying, oh, sweeps aren't that hard, just play, etc. And historically, I've been able to send out those tweets relatively often when it comes to teams the Cardinals are able to sweep. This season, it's been a little bit of a different story, hasn't it? Multiple occasions where I've had to tweet that tweet at the expense of the Cardinals getting swept by somebody. Didn't have to do it tonight, though, as the Cardinals able to salvage the final game in Miami. A four-game series makes it a little easier, right? Better chances to win at least one of those games if you were the Cardinals, even playing the way that they're playing. But the Cardinals had a very good top-to-bottom performance on Thursday. We'll talk about the start from Jack Flaherty. And what that maybe does for his trade value as the deadline comes into focus. It's something that we're going to talk a lot about this month because if you look at the standings, the Cardinals are out of it. I mean, that's the tenor I think that this show is going to have to take for the foreseeable future. Speaking about the Cardinals as a team that is going to have to sell at the deadline. But hopefully that's something that still keeps your interest as a Cardinals fan because I think it's really relevant. I think what John Mozeliak in that front office might come up with over the next three or four weeks is especially relevant to what the Cardinals are going to look like in 2024. I'll explain a little bit what I mean about that as we go on throughout B-Shape Daily programs over the rest of the month. But the general idea is that I don't think you can just remake this pitching staff in one offseason. I don't think you can look toward this winter and just have faith that, oh, John Mozeliak's going to be able to retool the entire thing over the course of November, December, January and be chipper and ready to go by mid-January at at the next year's winter warm-up and say, yep, the pitching is fixed. No, I think that process has to begin now. And that's why I think this trade deadline is so important for the Cardinals. Maybe not the 2023 Cardinals, right? Like, we could acknowledge where they are in the standings You don't have to like it. You shouldn't like it. If you're a Cardinals fan, you should demand excellence and you should demand more of this organization. There's no doubt about that. This season has been an utter disappointment. But for where they are right now, it just has to be kind of a reality check, I think, for Cardinals fans. And a lot of Cardinals fans have settled into this mode. Some have gone even farther and taken it even farther than I would recommend doing. A lot of people wondering, well, why not trade Paul Goldschmidt if you're going to be sellers at the trade deadline. Well, I still think the expectation should be the Cardinals being a competitive team with serious aspirations for not only the NL Central, but the National League playoff picture at large when it comes to 2024. Realistically, it's going to take a magical 17-game win streak, something like what they pulled off in September 2021, to be able to get back into the mix this year. Maybe that's what began on Thursday night, but I do think a lot of our conversation is going to tilt more toward how can they retool and do so quickly in order to avoid the lengthy type of rebuild situations that other teams have deployed in the not-too-distant past. That's where I think things are with the Cardinals right now, and we'll continue to monitor the situation. They're 12 and a half games out. They're 15 games below 500 after Thursday's win over the Marlins, but that's just a, a tough road to hoe, as they say. And so, like I said, we'll monitor. We'll see where they're at. But realistically, I think it's going to be difficult to find their way back into the picture, especially when you consider this. Like, we've talked a lot about prior to the last, I would say, couple of weeks where things really have taken a turn for the worse as the calendar really truly begins to work against the Cardinals. We've talked about the NL Central, the division at large, as sort of this pathetic unit and one that is ripe for the picking. That really is not the case anymore with the way a couple of the teams at the top are playing. In particular, the Cincinnati Reds, who have won eight of their last 10 at this recording time. They're 10 games above 500 at 49 and 39, with a pretty respectable 557 win percentage. Now, it's behind the Braves. It's behind the Diamondbacks of the NL West. It's basically, though, in lockstep with the Dodgers. 10 games above 500 are the Reds. Same exact story for the Dodgers, although they've played two fewer games 
and therefore have the Reds by percentage points. But like the Reds, percentage point wise, are what the fourth, fifth best team in the NL right now in the National League. So it's not like this is going to be a division anymore that we could talk about being one with 82, 83 wins. I don't know if that's exactly realistic anymore if the Reds continue down this path, especially now if they decide at the trade deadline, hey, we're a little bit ahead of schedule, but rather than kind of just pack it in and and just hope to sneak into the playoffs and, and have that as a, a nice little fanfare, well, let's maybe get some pitching help for this this lineup that suddenly got some young infusion of talent. Let's add some pitching at the deadline if we're the Cincinnati Reds and see about making a run at this thing. I don't necessarily anticipate that's what they'll do. I, th- I think they're going to resemble more the 2022 version of the Baltimore Orioles, who last year when they were ahead of schedule and realistically in the playoff picture at the end of July, they still sold, traded Trey Mancini away and, and, and made some moves that were uh, indicative of a, a team selling at the deadline, not believing in their own ability. Now this year, it's a different story for the Orioles. They've got a nice record at 51-35. and 35. They're certainly going to be uh, a playoff team, barring something crazy over the final couple few months of the season. And so the expectation certainly for that fan base at this point should be to buy at the deadline. But the Reds, they might be a little bit too early to that party. It may just not matter, though, for the Cardinals. They're, they're Again, 85-86 wins, that could be around where the Reds or Brewers land. Cardinals aren't winning that number of games. They very well might lose 90. And so we're going to continue to talk about this team and talk about the way they're performing on a day-to-day basis. But a lot of the conversation is going to have to, at some point, shift into the larger picture of things uh, unless the Cardinals begin in earnest a comeback effort, the likes of which we've really never seen. So we'll see what the Cardinals are able to do on that front. But tonight, talking about Jack Flaherty, talking about this win over the Marlins, and we want to get into as well the roster news that came Thursday. Matthew Libertor demoted back to AAA Memphis. He had been in the rotation kind of, sort of, for a while, and we'll talk about maybe the way the Cardinals handled him, the fact that they didn't ever really give him that consistent rhythm in order to to kind of feel himself as a starter, as a member of this rotation, in the way that maybe they could have, how that maybe impacted him in some ways. But also, I do want to make sure we allude to the fact that it is a performance-based business, and Matthew Libertor had not performed. So we'll try to bring nuance to the table. We'll try to bring perspective, as we always do on B-Shape Daily. Make sure you guys are subscribed to the YouTube channel, Brendan Schaefer, St. Louis Cardinals writer. That is where... The action is, it is where the magic has happened, is happening, and will continue to happen throughout the rest of this Cardinals season and into the offseason. Uh, we had a great live stream yesterday. It's now up over 1,000 views on YouTube. So appreciate you guys so much for checking out the live stream. We'll do those as often as we can. Did have a little bit of technical difficulties uh, and, and had to kind of refire on the live stream yesterday. But, hey, second time was a charm, and we ended up having a great time for about 90 minutes. So if you missed that live stream, you can go back and watch it for sure. A lot of great listener interaction to that, but would love to have you subscribe if you're not yet on board. The Brendan Schaefer St. Louis Cardinals Writer YouTube channel. Now is the time to do it as we really ramp up the content as the trade deadline approaches. I think it's going to be a very pivotal time for this Cardinals team, and you don't want to miss any of it. And if you just like the audio-only versions and aren't worried about catching the live streams, which you should be worried about it, you should be prioritizing that, of course, um, by subscribing on YouTube. But another way that you can catch the content is by following B-Shape Daily on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Depending on where you get your podcasts, those are two great locations to get the audio-only versions of every show, everything that we put out. But there will occasionally be some other videos as as news drops. It may not be a full B-Shape Daily, but you can bet you'll find the content on YouTube. Occasionally, we throw some things on Patreon as well, patreon.com slash bshafer12. That's only if you're really enamored by the content and want to say, hey, thanks. I can uh, subscribe to the premium stuff over there and uh, toss Brennan Schaefer a few bucks for his work. But anyway, let's go ahead and get into the meat of it tonight as the Cardinals did get that win over the Marlins, 3 nothing. We'll spend some time talking about the game first and then get into my general thoughts on the Matthew Libertor stuff, which you can read as well at kmov.com slash sports. The column that I put on there today when it comes to the decision-making that the Cardinals have basically displayed this season, it's not been very strong. Across the board, there have been a number of questionable moves. I thought using Matthew Libertor on short rest, uh, as we talked about a little bit on the podcast yesterday, the live stream on Wednesday, I thought was ill-fated, and it proved to be so with Libby only recording one out. And so, yeah, even though he was demoted on Thursday, and it makes a lot of sense when you look at the numbers, 
I just don't think the Cardinals put him in a great position to thrive. But we can get into that a little bit more after we dissect this 3-0 win for the Cardinals over the Marlins. How about Jack Flaherty? We said coming into this game that if he could string a couple of more impressive starts together, it could set up a very intriguing situation at the deadline where the Cardinals could potentially be able to capitalize on his value to a potential contender and being able to pick up some prospects or some young MLB talent in exchange for his services. I think he took a great step toward that potentially happening on Thursday with Jack Flaherty pitching into the seventh, unable to record that final out of the seventh inning, but goes six and two-thirds, goose eggs in the run column, had a couple of walks he gave up, scattered those nine hits, had the five strikeouts, lowering the season ERA from 4.60 to 4.27. Jack Flaherty, man, that's another example of a Jack Flaherty start where his command was looking pretty strong. He had his stuff working. It was moving. Used 111 pitches, largely because of that final at-bat. I believe it was Brian De La Cruz that had the very lengthy walk, which loaded the bases in the seventh and was uh, the, the, the at-bat that ultimately forced Jack Flaherty from the game. But other than that, man... He just threw a lot of strikes, 75 strikes to 111 pitches in total, meaning only 36 balls by my math. I mean, that's a pretty good ratio for Jack Flaherty, who at times this year has been closer to 50-50. He's just not had that consistent command of the zone. And he had it tonight, and I would say now for at least the last couple of starts, he's had it. The the two prior to that, he gave up six earned runs in consecutive games. Now what you want to see, especially for a guy that you're hoping can build some value coming up on the deadline. And that was uh, a stretch that toward the uh, the, the mid-late June portion forced his ERA up to 4.95 for the season. And you think about teams at the deadline and what they're looking for, it's not usually pitchers with an ERA of 5 to bolster their rotation. However, Jack Flaherty, after having a little bit of a hiccup in London where following the long flight across the pond, he wasn't able to make his start, had uh, a minor, I think it was the back or the hip or something that was kind of flaring up on him in general, and then uh, that that forced him out of the ability to compete in that series. But coming back after a little bit more time off, looked really good against the Yankees on Saturday, and then uh, tonight's game against the Marlins, Skip Schumacher's Marlins, where Flaherty was able to once again be sharp, pitch into the seventh, nearly got out of it. I loved, by the way, the decision by Ali Marmel with runners on first and third and two outs there in the seventh inning. Ali Marmel comes out to the mound, has a very brief conversation with Jack Flaherty that had no choice other than to end with, okay, you're keeping the baseball for this next batter. He was over 100 pitches. I think we, it was about 102 at that point. And I know the result was the result. The if that ends up going pretty long. It's a full count. Batter fouls off a, a couple few pitches, and Flaherty eventually loses him by kind of spiking a slider there, was, was not too close to the zone, but was maybe going for the chase. And that ends that. Jack Flaherty out of the game after 111 pitches. Even though that individual impact did not pan out, I thought, since we always tend to talk about Ali Marmel and the decisions that he makes or should have made or didn't make, I thought it was a great move by Ali to give Jack the latitude to try and work through that moment. Despite being over 100 pitches, despite maybe seeing the command flutter a little bit on him as he went, I think, 3-0 and on that De La Cruz at bat before really battling back and almost finding a way to get him. I like the decision to trust the starter who has looked so good for the entire game. It was 2 nothing Cardinals at that point. So very much the game is still hanging in the balance. And the wrong move, a false move there by Jack Flaherty, could have cost the Cardinals this game. But if you're Ollie Marmel at this point, and you've seen a number of times your bullpen blow games, you've seen your starters blow games, you've seen anything that could have possibly happened to this point to blow a game has happened to the St. Louis Cardinals. And Ollie Marmel has had a front row seat to all of it. And so in that particular moment, you almost start to second-guess yourself, I would think, as a manager at this point, where it seems like no matter what decision you've made to this point, it's been the wrong one most of the time. And again, I don't say that as a criticism of Ollie Marmel. There are things to criticize. There are absolutely things to criticize about the way that he's managed the season. But when it comes to bullpen management, I really do think he's made the best of a bad situation. And I, I do believe that's the hand that he's been dealt. The bullpen as it has existed so far this season for the Cardinals, when it comes to the consistency day in and day out of having guys that are able to get the job done, Ollie Marmel has basically been dealt a bad hand. You look at the relievers that he has had at his disposal this season, hasn't been all too impressive of a group. 
I know there for a little bit we were talking about the bullpen and the fact that none of those guys in in the bullpen at all had ERAs below four, 4.00. Not one of them was was below that number at, at that point when we had that discussion. Uh, now, technically, like Jojo Romero is back with the team, and he's below three. Um, technically, Dakota Hudson's only got a 3.38 ERA, although, you know, it's just been in five innings pitched. Hicks is still above four. Palante above four. You're talking about your mainstays. Gallegos at 4.37. Chris Stratton is a 4.43. Um, Zach Thompson is back now, but he's well above four. Cabrera, 4.75. Rehagan's on the IL, but he was nearing five. Steven Matz is at five. I mean, that's been largely the group that Ali Marmel has been reliant upon this season. Ryan Helsley at 3.24 would be the, the best mark of the guys who have been there for the most part. But again, he's on the injured list as well. So it just has been slim pickings for Ali Marmel when you're looking late in a game to try and figure out the way you want to attack it with the bullpen. A lot of managers have weapons at their disposal. Ali Marmel has a bunch of butter knives in the drawer trying to figure out which order he should use them in as though one might have the potential to be sharper than another on a given night. That's honestly the analogy that I think is appropriate. And I don't mean that to denigrate any of the individual pitchers in that bullpen, but we can be honest about the numbers, right? As Paul Goldschmidt alluded to early, early in the season, when he said at the end of a season, six months, a baseball season is fair. There's no chalking it up to luck or to, to bad breaks or anything like that at the end of 162. Your numbers are your numbers there at the end of it all. And so it's not like I'm unfairly trying to denigrate these players. Their numbers through over now half of the season as the Cardinals have played, what, 86 games? They're 35 and 51. It's an ugly mark, but they're well beyond now the halfway point of the season. And so their numbers are the numbers. And yes, they have a chance to change them. Albert Pujols, guy like that, certainly did last season in his second half with what he was able to do after the All-Star break. But to be able to make significant changes to the, the body of work, the track record at this point, it's going to take a, a monumental feat by everybody in that bullpen to be able to say at the end of the year, yep, this was actually a good bullpen for 2023. Because through the first half, plus five games or so, it just hasn't been the case. And so I understand Ollie Marmel in that moment says, look, Jack Flaherty's been the guy that has gotten us to this point. We have seen in previous seasons and maybe glimpses in 2023, though they've been infrequent. We have seen Jack Flaherty have moments where he can carry a team and he can be an emotional spark and a leader in that way. And this Cardinals team is desperate right now, looking for the potential to find some leadership. And I, and I may have misspoken. They're not 35 and 51. They're 36 and 51. So get it right, B-Shaved. They're only 15 games under now after the win on Thursday. Keeping Jack Flaherty in for that spot, I thought was perfectly fine. You've got to find a way to galvanize the troops. You've got to find something that they can rally around. And if Jack Flaherty gets a punch out there, I think obviously the Cardinals won this game 3-0 and the bullpen ultimately did do its job. Uh, Chris Stratton coming in for the final out of the seventh. And then you get the Gallegos and Hicks combination for the eighth and ninth and both of them. Uh, uneventful outings, which is exactly what you want to see. And Jordan Hicks, in particular, I thought was very sharp. Gets his sixth save of the season. Uh, ends up earning a strikeout in the process. The pitches looked like they were really moving well for him. Good to see him have the bounce back after what had happened the previous night, which, again, was nothing to do with his delivering the baseball to home plate. It was more about him throwing the ball away to uh, the first baseman and having that ball sailing into right field, costing the Cardinals. Good to see the Jordan Hicks bouncing back, especially for his trade value, because I, I maintain that that could be um, something of note as the Cardinals approach July 31st. But I think it was a good decision to go with Flaherty, even though the result wasn't there in the moment. Flaherty ended up walking the guy. I think anybody with eyes could see that even though he lacked a little bit in the way of command at the beginning of that at bat, he really settled in, battled, and tried to find a way to put that hitter away. Even though the result doesn't always go the way that you wanted it to, I felt like that was a good bit of managing to say, hey, if we can get Jack through this moment, maybe that's something that can lead to momentum for our team. Didn't happen, but credit to Chris Stratton for being able to get out of the jam nevertheless, and the bullpen did its job. That's just one example, though, right? Like, the Cardinals have now blown 18 saves, I believe, on the season, which is more than they did all of 2022, and they have allowed a bunch more earned runs already than they did last season, if I'm not mistaken, like, the numbers in the underlying data on a lot of this stuff does not favor the Cardinals, and it's why their record is what it is. They're 15 games below 500 
and they are well, well out of the division race right now. 12 and a half behind the Reds. They didn't gain any games on the Reds today because Cincinnati, imagine that, they won again. And so you're when you go four and six over a 10-game stretch and they go eight and two, you're, you know, you're going to lose ground. And that's what the Cardinals have consistently done. And we'll see whether they're able to turn it around. I, I'm not really holding my breath to spend a lot of time talking about the machinations of what that looks like anymore to go on a, you know, 103 win pace the rest of the way just to get to 80 or whatever the hell it would be. It doesn't really matter. But we could talk about these games individually. And I think the takeaways from the game on Thursday were Jack Flaherty, good for a second time in a row, had six shutout innings on Saturday against the Yankees. You had six and two-thirds to that. If you do it one more time, I think you can look at teams around the league going, okay, if that version of Jack Flaherty is one that we could get for the final two months, that can be a difference-making player. And they'll be able to sell to John Moselock, those opposing teams, that, hey, Jack Flaherty's not signing with you guys anyway. You, you know, you're probably not even going to do the qualifying offer thing. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But wouldn't it just make more sense? We'll give you a nice prospect for him. Take him off your hands. John Moselock is going to have to resist the sell low on Jack Flaherty, but I do believe that it makes sense to sell on Jack Flaherty. He's got to be a shrewd negotiator and make some magic happen. Same thing when it comes to Jordan Montgomery. Same thing when it comes to Jordan Hicks. Yes, Brendan Schaefer is now treating this season for the Cardinals like one where they've got to operate like what the record dictates they are, and that's sellers, at least in the short term. Again, I don't think that's saying the same thing as trade guys who uh, could help you in 2024. You don't trade Paul Goldschmidt just to, to reload on prospects necessarily. Uh, it's just not a move that I would personally make. I would be re-signing Goldschmidt to uh, a new contract extension for a couple of years in February, uh, provided you get a sense from him that he wants to play that long and continue to go. Uh, Goldie was out of the lineup from Thursday. Uh, Alec Burleson actually started at first base and had a couple of base hits too. So that was nice to see from him to get an opportunity and, and do something with it. But generally... I. I'm looking at this team as one that's probably not making a run, and so that's why a lot of the conversation is catered toward, hey, it's a good thing these pitchers are doing what they're doing because I think the Cardinals can help themselves in terms of a quick retool and not one that lasts multiple years in which it would make sense to think about moving a Goldschmidt or, or even somebody like Arenado. I don't think that's the situation that the Cardinals are in. It does take pitching. It's going to take a lot of pitching that they don't currently have, but by trading some of the short-term pitching that has been good, like, to this point, Montgomery's been really solid. And Jack Flaherty, even, you can look at his numbers for the season and go, all right, probably more good than bad, to be honest. Uh, 4.27 ERA is not, you're not over the moon about that. But that's a, you know, that's a stable enough number three, number four of a of a middling rotation. And, and you know, if, if somebody like that's a number five or, a, or even a number four, if he's pitching the way that he has recently for a team that has playoff aspirations, I think there's a lot of value to be had there from Jack Flurry. Exactly who's going to want to get him. I think injuries over the next three weeks for other teams could absolutely color that conversation because that's where desperation comes from. Other teams begin to, to grow desperate. Maybe they didn't think they were interested in Jack Flaherty, but uh, when when teams that are playoff or World Series contenders lose one and a half to two to three starters over the course of three weeks, which can happen. I'm not saying it's going to, and I can't tell you where it would happen. It's just speculative at this point. But when those things happen, I would like to believe that John Moselak will be in a position to pounce, being able to offer up two of his starting pitchers that are that are rental guys, some mercenaries, to head out and potentially join contending rosters. Both Jordan Montgomery and Jack Flaherty, I think, fit the billing for that. But you got to be smart about it. Like, I think the worst-case scenario, again, this is one that I could envision because I, I don't personally have faith that John Moselak is going to get the most out of these players. I think he can trade them, and I think he can get you know, talent back in return for some of these guys that it makes sense to move. But I also could see John Moselak not being in the tip-top shape of these negotiations. And ultimately, I don't know if desperation is the right move, but whatever the emotion and the the call to action was when it came to moves like, hey, we got to sign Wilson Contreras to $87.5 because otherwise we don't have a catcher. Like, it's a false equivalency that really wasn't the case, but I feel like... It's the box the Cardinals kind of placed themselves into nice and neatly, which led to the moves that we saw in the offseason, which were basically one move and nothing else, right? When it comes to the pitching, you said, well, we got six, seven, eight guys that we think could be starters. But then when you step back from that and go, well, what if none of them are good or only two or three of them are good? Maybe we don't have the depth that we thought we did. I can I can think back to it 
in the months like January and February, especially like December, when we had the opportunity to still think the Cardinals might do something on the pitching front. We talk so much about how you might have physical bodies there, but are those guys capable? Are they going to give you the quality innings that you need? The answer to that has been no, by and large, this season. And it's put the Cardinals in the position that the couple of the guys that have been reliable, they still happen to be free agents to be, and you're probably going to have to just extract the most value that you can from those guys by moving them somewhere else. But in so doing, I think the Cardinals can recoup some of the talent that they need to be able to realign these assets for 2024. And that's where the other interesting part of the trade deadline comes in. If you've listened to Be Shaped Daily, if you're a subscriber on the YouTube channel, which you should be, would love to have you subscribe. Brendan Schaefer, St. Louis Cardinals writer. If you're watching on YouTube right now, get those comments in as to how you believe Jack Flaherty's recent performance could or should impact what the Cardinals intend to do with him at the deadline. Because I know there are a lot of you Cardinals fans out there who have said, look, I want to ride this thing out. I want to see what they're able to do if they're able to come up with some sort of miracle to get back in the mix the second half of the season. I've seen it happen before, and as a Cardinals fan, I don't want to give up on this season. I applaud those people. I think it's absolutely the spirit of what Cardinals baseball should be to feel that way. However, I think the the math is just going to be so difficult that if you've got these obvious, beautiful apples hanging from the tree that you could just pick them and it's basically a no-brainer to do so because it's hanging right there. I was trying to avoid using the phrase low-hanging fruit, if you didn't notice, because I know that's kind of a, a sticky one for Cardinals fans. But I really think the low-hanging fruit of this trade deadline in a very positive way is to kind of open up these these pitching assets that are performing at the right time, that are making themselves attractive to other MLB contenders and and, and good quality playoff caliber teams, and just say, hey, you guys know you need these players this prospect or this young pitcher or this young whatever is not helping you win in 2023 and your fan base deserves it. You know, Mo's got to put the press on and be like, look, I know you need these guys and we're willing to give them up, but you got to be fair and you got to be reasonable about this and not allow yourself to get kind of uh, backed into a corner in negotiations. That would be my my hope for what John Mozeliak is able to accomplish for the Cardinals and for Cardinals fans coming up over the next few weeks. Like I said, is my is my faith or confidence high in in the fact that of, of the two sides, one's going to have leverage and one's not, is my faith high that Mo is going to be the one that operates and, and grabs the leverage? I don't know if that's going to be the case because historically been more of a, of a reactive organization than proactive, but I think there's an opportunity to be bold at this deadline and do things a little bit differently. And as I've referenced heavily, that means trading the rentals. Montgomery, Hicks, Flaherty, getting value for those players I think is key number one. The other part of this, though, where I talked about bold and I talked about maybe uncomfortable is those position players that the Cardinals do have somewhat of an excess of when you, and it's hard to say, well, Brendan, do they have too many infielders or too many outfielders? Well, yes, because they're using some infielders as outfielders and vice versa. Well, maybe not vice versa. They're using infielders as outfielders, and that has created a logjam, but also it's been by necessity because the outfield has not been healthy, performing, whatever, at, at various times of the season. And so between those two groups, they've got some guys who can do both. They've got guys who are in the outfield but haven't performed up to expectations. And they've got infielders that may not have the trade value that makes it worthwhile to move them, or they're guys the Cardinals just don't or shouldn't want to trade. Some of those players, though, may need to be involved if the Cardinals are going to retool their pitching as quickly and effectively as they need to. And that's where it gets uncomfortable because, again, the Cardinals were resistant trading guys like Brendan Donovan in the offseason, Lars Newpar in the offseason. Didn't want to have those names involved in the Sean Murphy deal with Oakland. Oakland wanted those names. They didn't get him. Cardinals didn't get Sean Murphy. They're, you know, you guys know how this played out. The Cardinals reportedly were willing to include Nolan Gorman in some of those conversations, which you might say would have been uh, another one of those strategic mistakes, to borrow a phrase from John Mozeliak, you know, with the way that he has performed. Offensively, it's been hit and miss. He was very hot early, has really kind of dipped down, and is now maybe, hopefully for the Cardinals' sake, improving back toward where he had been. A two-for-three night tonight for Nolan Gorman, also reaching base via walk. A nice night for him in the middle of the Cardinals' lineup with an RBI and a run scored. The OPS is back up to 801. So if he's an 800 OPS guy, 
playing what I consider to be plus defense at second because everybody would tell me, oh, Nolan Gorman's a bad defender at second base, and that's why yada, yada, yada. And it's like, all right, I know if all you're doing is going into baseball reference or fan graphs or whatever and just looking up what the partial season defensive data is going to tell you, that at times it's not going to look great for Nolan Gorman. Every time I have seen him play second base, he does something that impresses me. Tonight it was a nice turn of a double play that was started by Arenado that just wasn't a double play ball. It was a very difficult situation. He had to avoid the bat as well. It was a broken bat. And, and Arenado does Arenado things. But Nolan Gorman with a nice turn. Like, he plays a very solid second base, in my opinion, and that has contributed to his value this season. So when you're thinking about these sorts of trades where the Cardinals may have to bite the bullet on moving a position player that they really like for a pitcher, John Mozeliak was resistant to doing it in the offseason. I'm not even saying it was the wrong move. But I do think if you're going to make that stance, that hardline stance, you need to find another way to adjust and address the pitching, and they just didn't do that part of it. You know, they did the first part without doing the second part, and that's kind of been the story for the Cardinals over the years, that it's half measures. They can't afford these half measures anymore. I think they've got to do something bold. But does that mean trade Donovan? It shouldn't. Donovan, to me, is the third most valuable Cardinal position player on this roster. Even after an 0 for 5 tonight, he's still got a 283 average and a 783 OPS for the season I know he's injured right now and can't throw. Hopefully by the end of the All-Star break, that's something that will be uh, rectified where he can get some time off, able to uh, continue to, to play the field again in the second half because a lot of his value has come from his defense. And uh, hopefully that's not a, an issue that lingers with the throwing arm soreness that he has had. But I just think he is such a valuable player. Arenado and Goldsmith are the top two. And, you know, the two highest OPSs on the team. Gorman probably right behind Donovan. Well, Jordan Walker is ahead of Gorman in my estimation. But I would even have Donovan ahead of Jordan Walker. And I think Jordan Walker is going to end up being a stud. 0 for 4 tonight. 279 is his average. 786 is his OPS. I think he's going to be a guy that settles into a perennial 800-plus OPS guy. But his outfield defense is problematic right now. And it's going to take some time, I think, for him to get to even a league average level or a level where you just don't notice him in such a negative way defensively, whether he ends up in left field, right field, whatever the case might be. Uh, Jordan Walker's not to a point yet. I still would say Brennan Donovan, with everything that he brings in his skill set, more valuable to the Cardinals in present day. Now, a year or two down the road, the answer should be Walker. He should be able to elevate himself to that point. But I really just, and maybe it's hyperbolic to say that about Brennan Donovan, but it's to prove the point that I really do think is an important point. You don't trade him at the deadline. I don't care if it's the answer at pitching. I don't. I do not think the Cardinals can afford to trade Brennan Donovan. That's the one name. Like, listen, I've been a, a big Lars Newtbar believer, defender, supporter. I think you trade Newtbar before you trade Donovan. I think you trade Nolan Gorman before you trade Brennan Donovan. And I mean that. I, I Obviously, Gorman's got more power upside. And I think Nolan Gorman is a very good baseball player that's going to turn into a very complete baseball player be able to put him at second base and have him do a nice job there down the road and be one of the more power-hitting, threatening offensive second basemen in the National League. I think that's the future for Nolan Gorman. The consistency hasn't been there yet this year, but he's still a very young player. He's still got time to grow, and so I'm not overreacting to that and saying, oh, he's toast, you know, he or, or he's limited, right? He is what he is. He's this guy that's going to hit for some power, but it's just not going to be consistent. He's 23 years old. I think you give him a pass a little bit on that as we'll maybe try to figure out when it comes to Matthew Libertor, if he gets the same uh, the same opportunity in, in, in the, uh, the the court of public opinion. We'll kind of see what we think about that before we get out of here today on B-Shape Daily. But I just think you can't trade Brandon Donovan. Going down the list, Newt Bar, I, I think he needs to be somebody that's stationed in the outfield for years to come. But I can recognize, too, that he might just have more name value than the production the Cardinals get out of him. He's not a center fielder, and the Cardinals continue to put him in center field at times, and I just frankly don't understand that. Um, tonight, you did have Dylan Carlson finally getting a start in center field, and Newpar started the game in right field. Um, Carlson ends up going 0 for 2, but walks twice. So his, his OPS is 714. Can we just cut the crap and, and see Dylan Carlson play every day and, and be the center fielder every day? I mean, I've been the hashtag everyday Dylan guy. But it's, I don't want it to be like an animosity sort of thing, but it's like the Cardinals are not doing themselves any favors with this continual experimentation of look. It, it almost feels as though they are looking for reasons to not put Dylan Carlson in center field. 
And I don't even understand what the logic behind that would be. And so I'm, I'm done, honestly, trying to figure it out myself. But that's the way it, that it has felt at times. And it's not that he's like this superstar offensive player. And I'm not claiming that he is, but he's got a 714 OPS. And that's not, it's not nothing. It's not good enough. But give him everyday opportunity. Continue to let him him grow and flourish and, and feel confident about knowing that he's going to be in that lineup and that he's trusted by the organization he's with. This kid is 24 years old. We talk about Gorman being a young player at 23. I know maybe we don't think of Dylan Carlson that way because he came up when he was pretty young and he, you know, he he kind of had to, to take his licks in 2020 in the COVID season, ended up getting sent back to the alternate camp, if I recall correctly. Like, it wasn't a, just an immediate success story. But Dylan had a really good 2021, took a step back last year, largely, I think, related to injury. And this year has just been really, really tamped down in terms of opportunity. And it, it's a very noticeable to me at this point. And again, we I, I wrote the article for KMOV about the, the issue that the Cardinals have had when it comes to messaging and decision-making. I think Dylan Carlson, they've tried to, anytime a question is d- directly asked, like when I've asked Ollie Marmel about Dylan, they only say great things about him. But like the actions show that they are minimizing, I, I guess, his opportunity. And I just feel like, yeah, you could do that because somebody's got to be the odd man out. But it just doesn't feel like Dylan has performed in a poor enough way in any aspect of the game to merit him consistently being the guy that is sort of boxed out of those conversations. Like, Lars Newpar, I think, is a really good, solid player. He's hitting 257 with a 745 OPS. Dylan is a 242, 714 OPS. We don't need to act like those guys are worlds apart in terms of their value to this team. Nupar's been a more valuable offensive player, but I still maintain defensively, Dylan's your best defensive center fielder in the organization. Do the defensive metrics think he's great this year? I don't even know. I don't even care. Maybe I should care more about it, but again, just like with Nolan Gorman, partial season defensive metrics are not going to get me out of bed in the morning. Let it play out. Watch the game. Use your eyes. I'm not trying to be this like old school guy that says, oh, you should not look at analytics and new new data is bad. No, no, no. The data is good. But don't just trust it blindly. Use your eyes to know where the instincts are on the field. And Dylan Carlson's got him. So I really like what he does in center field. Wish they'd put him there every day. I think it would be the best for the team. And so that's why I say I wish for it. Because I know you Cardinals fans would like uh, them to play well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I just think that Dylan Carlson, the reason I, I've spoken so much about him and I haven't said Tommy Edmonds' name, but he's another example of this, which, by the way, 694 OPS, 237 batting average. Love Tommy Edmonds. Think he's a really solid baseball player. His numbers offensively for the season are worse objectively than Dylan Carlson's when it comes to OPS and batting average. Now, maybe there are some other things. Power numbers, you know, Dylan Carlson has not hit for all too many extra bases, and I can go ahead and pull it up so that it's, you know, we're at least being completely fair and accurate about it. The slugging percentage for Dylan is 379. That's not very high. It's not very good. I acknowledge that. Totally aware of that being the case. But Tommy Edmond, it's not like his slug could be all that much higher. I think it's around 380, 390. Yeah, 391 for the slug. But Dylan's, you know, doing better in on-base percentage. So I love Tommy Edmond as a player. I think the Cardinals are going to have to make a difficult decision about one of Newbar, Edmund, Carlson, unless they can convince another team that Burleson's got value or somehow extracted out of, of Paul DeYoung, which I don't foresee. He's back below 750 on the OPS. I need that $1,000. Longtime listeners of the show know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't know, ask in the YouTube comment section and let somebody answer it for you because they will explain the Paul DeYoung, 750 OPS, non-wager that continues to pend. But, like, I think that's the reality. And Nolan Gorman's name can go into this as well, I guess. Donovan, Newbar, Gorman, Carlson, Edmund feels like sort of the young core of guys who aren't completely untouchable. Like, Jordan Walker's not moving. Everybody else conceivably could be considered, I shouldn't say touchable, uh, movable by the Cardinals front office. Between whoever I said, Donovan, Newbar, Edmund, Carlson, and even Gorman. 
But Moselak might be able to shut that down real quick. He might say, no, we didn't trade Gorman in the offseason. We're glad that we didn't, and we don't want to move him. And they may not. You know, they probably don't want to move Lars Nupar either. I spent the last two offseasons saying you're crazy if any other fan base thinks they're getting Lars Nupar. They're not. Cardinals won't move them. I'm telling you, I know this to be true. Well, I don't know how confident I am in that anymore when you can compare the way that we have just done and say, well, Nupar and Carlson, are they're not the same. They're certainly not treated the same. One's kind of placed on the pedestal, and one's had to scrap for everything. It's not to say that Nupar doesn't deserve opportunities. I think it's sensible to give them to him, but the consistency of his performance is, is maybe a little bit below par for what they were hoping to get from him. But I don't think they're all that different. They're not different enough to where if one guy's got 10 times the trade value, which this is hyperbolic, but if Newt Bar to the, the rest of MLB because of the, the World Baseball Classic and the name that he's made for himself and, and being in a priority spot in the Cardinals lineup, if the rest of the baseball world views Lars Newt Bar as having five times the value in a trade, they're willing to give up five times more than they're willing to give up for Dylan Carlson, I think Newt Bar's the guy that you have to trade in that instance because it's John Mosellock's old favorite term, arbitrage. You've got to base some of these decisions on it's not really economics, so to speak, but like the ability to profit off of the assets that you have. I know they're people and they're players, and it's it's kind of weird to think of it in those terms. But if you can gain more for an asset, then maybe the asset should be worth in reality because that's the way the market values a large new bar. You know, the large new bar is a good player, but if the, the market values him as this this superstar with a a, a future ceiling of perennial all-star candidate and, and top 10 MVP guy every year, which is not to say that he can't turn into those things, but he's not demonstrated to this point that he's going to be those things. The Cardinals have to say, what do we think Lars Nupar is? And what does everybody else think he is? And where do those two valuations either match up or don't? And how do we take advantage of that accordingly? If it's the market values a guy much lower than we do as a team, well, you don't trade that player because he's worth more to you than he would be to them in a trade. That's just common sense. But I wonder if the valuations of Carlson and Newpar have, and clearly in the way that they're treated, they they haven't come too close together because Carlson's still batting to the bottom of the lineup. Newpar is regularly in the top third of the lineup. And so I, I think I'm answering my own question. But if at some point the Cardinals go, well, we never did want to trade Newpar, but he's the guy that we might have to move because everybody that's calling with pitchers to offer us, and we're offering them all these outfielders that aren't named Newpar, and those teams don't want those players. They want Newpar. There may come a point where they have to make a difficult decision. I'm not project, projecting that, predicting that, telling you who it's going to be with or anything like that. I'm just speculating on the nature of where the log jam is. It's in the outfield slash middle infield in that group of five names that I gave because Edmund and Donovan both end up being able to fill in for the outfield as well. So if you trade an outfielder, it's not like you're completely lost in terms of being able to fill those spots. If you trade an infielder, it just means that the Donovans and Edmonds and Gormans, whichever guys remain, probably are prioritized in terms of playing time on the infield. But I think it, the flexibility of it does afford the Cardinals the chance to tell other teams, like, yeah, we've got these talented young position players that are all cost-controlled. What, you, you know, what are you thinking here? That's where it's going to be sticky because I don't think the Cardinals want to trade any of the five. I think they'd be most willing to trade Carlson, again, based on the way that they've handled things this year. But that could also mean that if if their perception of him is similar to what the rest of the league thinks, he might have the lowest value of the group. And so that would not be an example of effectively massaging arbitrage. You wouldn't be looking at the valuation of Carlson being higher in a trade than, than in value to your team. I think it would be the exact opposite. So They've got to know and get a handle on those markets. And people are always asking, well, what does Mike Gersh do? I mean, that's a great example of it. they got to be working with teams and other front offices to figure out internally, hey, through these conversations, we believe that, I'm just picking a team out of thin air, but we believe that the Baltimore Orioles have a higher valuation of, of this player than the rest of the market, and that might be the way we get value out of this player by trading them specifically to that team, right? Because they've got a pitcher that we want or whatever. Like you have to be able to to know the market in and out, and I think that's the kind of stuff that that others in the front office they're having conversations constantly with other executives, and those are the things that you rely upon. The village it takes a village to to run a team, and uh, I think they said that before somewhere, right? To run a team, to raise a child, it doesn't really matter. 
it takes a lot of others in the front office. It's not just John Moselak, but the reason it all comes down to Mo is because he is sort of that final decision maker and he, and he does wield absolute power in many ways. That's something that's going to change within the next couple of years. Like it's not going to be that way forever, but those are all the kind of moving parts that I see coming into this Cardinals trade deadline. And to me, the most interesting question is not whether they trade Montgomery. It's very interesting to see what they will get for Montgomery. They're trading Montgomery. You have to. Again, unless you rattle off 12 in a row right here, right now, you're looking at these guys as, can we get value for these these expiring assets? You have to do it if the answer is yes. And I think the answer will be yes with the way that they're all performing. The two Jordans, not Walker, but the other two, the pitching Jordans, and Jack Flaherty. But the other conversation that I think is the, even more interesting about the Cardinals at the deadline is do they trade one of these position players that they f- frankly don't want to trade, but do they find it necessary to do so in order to get pitching? Let me know what you think about that. Which guys would be completely untouchable to you as a Cardinals fan? Sound off below in the YouTube comments section and make sure you guys are subscribed to the YouTube channel as well. Brendan Schaefer, St. Louis Cardinals writer, as we continue to do Cardinals content the rest of the way. That's kind of the long and short of it. I never really did get into too much about the offensive performance for the night. Uh, the Cardinals scored three runs, so it wasn't crazy. Um, seven hits, four walks. The one thing I do want to point out, I mentioned Nolan Gorman's day. Contreras uh, had another double, so he's starting to come around offensively a little bit. 730 is his OPS. Get it to 750 would be my recommendation. But Nolan Arenado with another backside home run, which led to Andrew Kisner, you know, playfully slapping him in the backside. Uh, the gift that I saw from Van Hickelstein on Twitter today. Yeah, that's um, Arnado likes his backside home runs. Goes opposite field, sort of. It's sort of that sweet spot of just right of center, which I definitely pondered there, uh, coming up with a political angle for an analogy. But I'm I'm going to stay away from it. But just right of center field. That's kind of the as far opposite field as Arnado is going to go. And he's done that a couple of times now this season. Finally, after chasing the fabled backside home run the last couple of years with St. Louis, he gets another one tonight. And uh, that's the one that put the Cardinals on the board. And they they obviously never lose the lead when they shut out the Marlins in a solid performance by Flaherty in the bullpen. So good to see Arenado continuing to swing a good bat. He's a deserving all-star for this team. Up to 17 home runs this season. I know maybe not the the best of offensive campaigns for him sitting at 833 on the OPS, batting average around 280. You look over the course of his recent seasons, like it's above his mark for 2021 in all in average and on base and in slugging, but it falls a little bit short compared to what he did last year with St. Louis. So we'll see if he's able to raise those numbers up the rest of the way, but certainly a deserving all-star. Maybe a little surprising that he's the Cardinals' only all-star given uh, that the Paul Goldschmidt's numbers are pretty strong as well. But it's, I don't think it's the end of the world. And I also don't think that Paul Goldsmith is losing any sleep over not being named to the All-Star team. But, I mean, 370 on base, 482 slug, 851 OPS for Goldie. Yeah, I think he definitely should have been in consideration. But it doesn't appear like he's going unless there's a, a last-minute substitution, which I don't even know when that has to be finalized. But it seems like probably not happening. So, nevertheless, that's the Cardinals offense from Thursday night. They did enough, 3 nothing. Yuri Perez is a really good young starter, and so the fact that they were able to get anything at all against him, I think you can probably take as a positive. And uh, it's it's the job that they were able to do against the bullpen as well with a couple of insurance runs to really uh, bring, thing home, bring things home for the Cardinals. But yeah, Yuri Perez may end up, along with Jordan Walker, as two of the front runners for Rookie of the Year. And I hate that this is the case, but Corbin Carroll, the stud for the Diamondbacks, got hurt tonight. And if he ends up being out for a period of time, that could kind of open the door for both the pitcher for the Marlins, Perez, and yeah, Jordan Walker, Cardinals outfielder that uh, is, is going to be in the daily lineup moving forward, and so maybe he's able to rack up some numbers. I hope Corbin Carroll wins Rookie of the Year, though, because I hope he's not hurt long-term. And I guess Ellie De La Cruz could be in that conversation as well, but, uh, you know, might be a little bit overhyped. Really good player, though. Don't get me wrong. Part of the reason the Reds are doing so well right now. But I want to make sure we get into a little bit of this Matthew Libertor conversation before we... Bid adieu to all the good people here on B-Shape Daily tonight. Matthew Libertor optioned to Memphis Thursday. Kyle Leahy, I might be saying that wrong, but that's kind of what it looks like. Kyle Leahy is the right-handed relief pitcher that takes the spot of Libertor. Steven Matz returning to the rotation, which seems like the obvious choice, I guess, at this point when nobody else has really jumped up 
to take the opportunity. I don't know how he'll do, but he's back in the rotation. It kind of is what it is. He looks solid as a reliever, and maybe he found something that can get him back to the form that the Cardinals liked about him when they signed him originally prior to that MLB lockout a couple of years ago. But to me, I want to focus more on the Libertor angle of this because I feel like the Cardinals truly did not put the 23-year-old in a very good position to succeed. One of the lines that I put in my article for KMOV, somebody ended up tweeting out a screenshot of it, and it, not that it went viral, but it was uh, was recognized from from some people in Cardinals Nation and uh, 47,000 views and 200 likes for a tweet that wasn't mine, but uh, did contain some of my information that I put out there. Here's what I said in the article. Despite making eight starts during his time with St. Louis this year, Libertor never did experience two consecutive starts spaced a standard five days apart. And Wednesday certainly wasn't the first time this season that the Cardinals got cute with his schedule. So, yeah, I went back and looked through it. There had been times where Libertor spent, you know, six days between, seven days between starts, or they, they used him out of the bullpen, so that kind of broke up the streak of consecutive regular rest starts. He never did have any consecutive regular rest starts was the point of that commentary there. Eight starts and never did he go start four days later, start again, and have it be that simple. That seems a little bit crazy to me. I know that the London trip was partially responsible for that because they weren't looking to rush him back through. And in fact, he wasn't supposed to have started in London, but because of the injury to Flaherty, they had to even further yank Libertor around and and put him in there you know, with 24 hours notice, basically, in game two of that London series, which that's another start that did not go well for him. So the circumstances of the last month and a half or so of Matthew Libertor in the Cardinals rotation did not go in his favor, but I feel like there was a lot of things that were happening that were, I'm not even going to say outside of his control, but just like not the way you'd want to see an organization handle somebody if they, that person were considered a prize pitching prospect that you really needed to make sure you put in the best position to succeed. That's what I feel like the Cardinals just haven't done. And it's kind of mind-boggling to me to know that that's the case when it should be such an emphasis at this point for the organization to prioritize those pitching prospects and putting them in the best possible uh, situations to succeed because they haven't done it recently. They haven't been able to translate their prospects on the pitching side into mainstay participants in the rotation. It just hasn't happened consistently. Jack Flaherty is maybe the best, most recent example. And again, he's had injuries. He's had inconsistencies as well. But those issues weren't bad enough to get him out of the rotation like what happened to Dakota Hudson, who's been at Memphis for most of the year and is now back with the team. But like, that's the other example of, okay, you've got pitching prospects. Can they, can you see it through and get those guys to the point of a second contract where you're glad they're still here after their free agency period? Time will tell if the Cardinals end up doing that with Flaherty, but I don't anticipate it, right? I've spoken this year for the most part, like he's going to be gone in the off season. And I still expect that to be the case. And maybe before then, right? We could see him gone before the end of the trade deadline period. Uh, later on this month. But for Libertor, I don't want to absolve him of culpability for the way that he pitched. With a 6.75 ERA, he was supposed to come out and be more of an attack-oriented guy, had more life on his fastball based on the reports from Memphis. And we saw a little bit of that at times, but it just the command wasn't consistent. He wasn't regularly able to find that rhythm. But I do wonder if part of that was the fact that the Cardinals, and, and I, I put this on Ollie Marmel, I put this on, John Moselak, everybody who had a hand in deciding the way they they handled the pitching plan over the the past six weeks or so when it pertains to Libertor, I think they did the guy a disservice. You can go all the way back to May 17th when he took that first start and he looked pretty good. And then on three days of rest on May 21st, they put him into a game as a reliever. And they said at the time, this is fine. He was on his bullpen day anyway. He was going to have to throw pitches and were kind of stretched thin because of the whole six-man rotation. So we really just need those pitches to count, and we're going to put him in the game. He gave up a couple of earned runs, did not look comfortable. I thought at the time that it was weird. Um, time continuing to march on, I think, proves that to have been a mistake. Like, I get that they were squeezed a little bit, but there are consequences for decisions. And so when you say, hey, six-man rotation, that's good, and it's good to give him an opportunity the way that they did. But you can't just decide that he's going to be the guy that you yank around and mess with his future. And to me, that's what the Cardinals ultimately did. And it was not a sound decision-making process. And they did it again when it comes to his involvement in Wednesday's game in the first place. 
He only recorded one out, but he was pitching on short rest. He was pitching on three days rest, and it just simply did not need to be the case. If you want to pitch somebody on short rest, like Dakota Hudson, I think, got into some action on Saturday as well, pitch him on short rest. Not because he's not important, not because his health doesn't matter, but because, frankly, there is a hierarchy in the way the Cardinals need to be able to treat these different players and say, we're expecting Libertor to hopefully, fingers crossed, be more of a factor in the future than Dakota Hudson. Dakota Hudson, we've seen for a number of years what it looks like, and I think we have a pretty good handle on it as the Cardinals, what we can expect from him. But I don't know that they can feel the same way about Matthew Libertor, and they didn't necessarily set up the scenarios to make sure that he was maximizing his usage and getting the most out of his opportunities. Yes, it's up to the player to be able to do that. Ali Marmel has repeated that a lot recently to say that at some point you can do all the things in the world, but the players just have to go out and perform. And I agree that that's kind of the long and short of why the Cardinals have not been successful this season. They simply have not gone out and performed enough times with enough frequency to be able to get the wins and the key moments and the, and the special situations to get through those times and win ball games. They haven't done it as a team. And a lot of guys on this team are, are holding responsibility for that. It's not just a couple of guys that fail, it's been largely a team effort in a negative way that they've not been able to do it. But that being said, there is the factor of a coaching staff and a manager and a front office can put players in positions to succeed or they can just kind of throw them to the wolves and make strategy decisions that don't make sense. When it comes to bullpen management, I've largely appreciated Dolly Marmel. When it comes to in-game, should he stick with this guy or go to this other guy, I understand that a lot of those moves have come back to bite him. I have not had a lot of issues with those moves. The issues that I do have are the consistent weird messaging of, well, it's actually fine for our former first-round pick, 23-year-old pitching prospect that we really need to be good and part of the 2024 rotation. It's fine. We're going to use him out of the bullpen on a short rest day because uh, he was going to pitch anyway, and that's, that's fine and normal. Okay, fine. You can present it that way. And then when you pitch him on short rest again, which happened just yesterday on Wednesday, he was coming off of an outing on Saturday where he threw 56 pitches, and that's not really that many pitches, so it's okay to throw off his schedule and pitch him on short rest. Okay, you can insist to me that that's true. I am to the point where I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. I don't think there is any reason with the track record of bad messaging and bad decision-making the Cardinals have put forth this season, and that goes back to Tyler O'Neill playing center field, It goes back to the Wilson Contreras saga behind the plate. It goes back to Adam Wainwright insisting that he's healthy and then saying, well, no, he's got a shoulder injury, of course. You guys don't know that he's always pitching through pain. Like, why wouldn't you know that? It's There have been enough of these questionable decisions and even more questionable manners of explaining those decisions with some, like, indignation from the team and some, some hubris certainly involved in this where, again, it doesn't matter if you're dismissive toward a reporter that doesn't lead to wins or losses. It's just a, it can be a separate thing. But when the losses are piling up and those things are happening with regularity, I go, okay, it's not incumbent upon me anymore to to drink this Kool-Aid. Not that it ever was, but I was always a guy that would say, all right, I'm trying to see their angle of it. And I really don't. And again, if you, if you say, well, you're just a mouthpiece, you can go back to B-Shape Daily episodes when the Tyler O'Neill stuff was happening. And I was saying, it's bonkers to me that Dylan Carlson's not the team's center fielder when he's in the lineup, and I don't have anything else to be able to say about it anymore. Like, I was telling you guys these things in real time, and it's kind of happening similarly when the, the Contreras saga unfolds. And then, yeah, with Wainwright, I was very much in the mind of, I'll oh, just let him pitch because I was admitting my bias, though, in that instance. I said, listen, I want Adam Wainwright to get to go out the way that he deserves to go out, and so I will be unapologetic about having some bias when it comes to just wanting to see him do well and seeing the team running back out there because, frankly, it just doesn't matter anymore. They don't seem like they're going to be competitive this year. But if he was dealing with a physical ailment when the Cardinals insisted that he wasn't, it's a different story, right? And so the fact that they were kind of indignant, Ali Marmo the other day coming out and saying, well, he's going to go on the IL because he's dealing with the shoulder stuff. It's like, well, I thought he was healthy. Well, you know, he's always dealing with physical limitations. He's 41 years old, and his his body is, is something he's had to grind through for years. Okay, that's fine, but you're a team 15, 16 games below 500 consistently saying one thing and then having it be another. And so at a certain point, when this happens to Matthew Libertor for the second time that they put him in on short rest and hasn't seen good results from it, 
I'm going to then start to go, you know, that's probably the wrong decision. I can just, I can just say it. And, and if, if you want to come back and say, well, we have more information than you do. And the Cardinals do. I mean, only Marmel, I have been absolutely in his corner saying that he looks at the information. He's, he's got a good process, but I have found that enough times this year, the process has led to results in, in decisions that I, I don't align with or, or, or don't make sense to me as an outsider, admittedly. Not, I'm not a member of the team. And so I look at them and go, well, I just don't, I don't get this one. So I'll call it like I see it and tell you when I don't get this one. Once again, I don't get it when it came to Matthew Libertor. I understand why they had to send him down today because the performance eventually just dictated that they, they couldn't continue to do what they were doing with him. But I think they also contributed to it getting to that point by not prioritizing more the player that is, in theory, somebody that could still be part of your future. And so I think that was was a misstep by the Cardinals, certainly the way that they they went about handling Libertor. And if you want to hear more about that or read more about that, kmov.com slash sports. It's uh, one of the most recent columns on the site discussing the uh, the Matthew Libertor situation and how it pertains to maybe some larger things going on with the Cardinals this year. Make sure to go check that out. If you would be able to support my content over at KMOV, that would be wonderful, and I would thank you kindly for doing so. Because I just feel like that's a topic that needed some legs and needed some room to breathe. And so wanted to talk about it here tonight. You know, another example of this when I talk about decision-making, and I saw this from Jeff Jones earlier today. I want to make sure I, I track down this tweet, but it pertains to Zach Thompson, who obviously started the season with the Cardinals in the bullpen, was a good lefty relief weapon for them there for a little while, but then started to kind of lose his command and, and was walking too many guys. And so when they sent him down, it was kind of a thought where, well, maybe it's performance-based, but they quickly said, no, no, it's because we want to move him to the rotation in Memphis to build him up to become a starter, maybe for the 2024 team. And I was like, okay, makes sense. They got to find innings and they got to find guys that could potentially fill those roles. And since he's not performing all that well right now in, in the major league bullpen, maybe this is the right time to do this. Okay. But Jeff Jones was watching the pregame show and gives a quote from Zach Thompson that I guess he would have said on the pregame about his move to the Memphis rotation. He says, to be honest, I was a little caught off guard. Zach Thompson says on the pregame about his move to the rotation in Memphis, which was described at the time as a move that he was excited about. So there's just another example of messaging. It's not, I mean, you could even go further and say that whole Jordan Walker thing where the video comes out from him in Memphis where the Cardinals say it's important that he starts lifting the ball more and getting the ball in the air. And Jordan Walker, all the, the while, kind of felt, well, I think that's just going to happen with time. And I think he was right. Understand the Cardinals wanting him to lift the ball. Also understand Jordan Walker saying, at a certain point, if it's impacting me in the plate and I'm thinking about too much when I'm in the batter's box, I got to get away from that. Just got to do what, what I do. And so that's another example where it's like, are these things really happening? Are we reading too much into these things when it's just like a, a minor difference of a description in the media does all that stuff matter that much probably not but when you have this mountain of evidence on the other side it's like why can they not get these things right and get everybody on the same page is it something we're talking about at all if they're a 500 team or 10 games above 500 like the reds of course not none of it matters it's just little crap that's irrelevant but look <laughs> we got to spend time talking about something in a season where they're 15 games below 500 and it is a little bit alarming, even if I w would take the, the stance of trying to give the benefit of the doubt, which I have at times, because I know these things can sometimes get lost in translation and what the team is actually putting forth isn't what people think it is because something gets misconstrued and somebody that's not even a reporter or wasn't even in the room when these conversations were had starts spreading it as though it's this other thing and it can spiral very quickly and is why if you're Albany Marmel or other members of the Cardinals, you can't always take every little thing that lands on social media to heart because a lot of times they get it wrong. I'm just telling you it happens with frequency. When I know better, I try to explain it on B-Shape Daily so you guys are more informed. And sometimes I don't know better, right? And so we're, we're speculating together, and that could be something that leads us down a dangerous road. But the bottom line is when a team is performing as poorly as this one has, the Cardinals in 2023, and they have a track record of doing not that, of always consistently being very good, yeah, you're going to find that we're talking about things that we're not used to talking about because we're all grasping at straws, wondering 
dissecting, trying to figure out exactly what the situation is with these things. So that's the way that it looks. That's where things are at this point. And wouldn't you know it, I was about to wrap up B-Shape Daily, but we've got a little bit of news to talk about. Derek Gould of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, a tweet just popped across my timeline literally two minutes ago that infielder Jose Fermin is expected to join the Cardinals on the south side of Chicago, according to a source. Uh, he was a guy that's been on the 40-man roster. I said earlier in the season, wouldn't shock me if they would DFA him. Uh, the reason I think they didn't is because they ultimately would have owed him a full year's salary, I think is the case. If they DFA'd him, uh, it would have been big league salary, so financial implications to that. Basically, you might as well give him an opportunity. I may be kind of conflating some of those things and getting the details wrong, um, but Jose Fermin, evidently per Derek Gould, to join the team. So what I wonder if that means they give Brendan Donovan the weekend, but because he was in the lineup today, I think that's maybe unlikely. Tommy Edmond was dealing with a little bit of a wrist thing that the x-rays came back negative, but you've got just three games now before the all-star break, and then it's it's a, a number of days off in a row to where anybody who does go on the 10-day IL right now as a position player, especially if it's a guy that hasn't played in a couple of days, but I think both Edmond and, and Donovan got into the game today, so it wouldn't be the case for either of them. Ultimately, though, those guys wouldn't have to miss all that much time after the all-star break. And so now is a strategic time to be using the IL to your advantage. And so Jose Fermin may be going to get an opportunity with the Cardinals. And so we'll see what to make of that. They might as well throw him in the lineup and see what he does. But he's basically over the course of his time in, in the minors has been a light-hitting middle infield type of which the Cardinals don't really have a huge need for because the middle infields that, that they have are either light-hitting but can also play the outfield like Edmund or they're not light-hitting. Donovan, Gorman. Paul DeYoung, take it or leave it on what you think about that. But uh, more than likely, it's probably a Tommy Edmund thing if I had to guess. News dropping like this at nearly 1 p.m. 1 p.m. 1 a.m., I should say, as of this recording in the Central Time Zone. But that is going to do it for this edition of B-Shape Daily. Thank you guys so much for watching and listening. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube and give that video a like. Let's get the likes up high and let's see how... Well, how far they can climb. Appreciate you guys as always for the support that you give of the content. Subscribe as well over on Apple Podcast. Follow on Spotify. Stay up to the B-Shape Daily Universe, Metaverse, all that stuff. I'm clearly getting delirious, so we're going to wrap it up here. Thank you guys so much for listening to this edition of the show, and we'll talk to you next time on B-Shape Daily. Peace.